Hey gang, you're listening to the R&R Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Dave Collins, an emergency physician from rural Minnesota, who's going to share a very interesting case with us. Dave does a really fantastic job of translating the difference between Canadian and American units, but at one point he does refer to a hemoglobin of 13. 13 correlates to 130 for us Canadians. If you could tell us who you are and what you do, that would be great. Sure. So my name is Dave Collins. I'm a emergency medicine trained physician in the States. I practice emergency medicine primarily in the states of North and South Dakota, as well as the state of Minnesota. So I bounced around a little bit, but my passion lies in rural emergency medicine and working in low resource areas. So it's just been a love of mine since I started med school and just blessed to be in a place that I can do it now. Right on. And you're also taking an ultrasound fellowship at the moment. Yeah. You know, I, I figured I hadn't gotten enough education yet. So I am doing the Ultrasound Leadership Academy Fellowship, and I've been learning tons and been applying it to my practice, which is great. I'm a big fan. That's awesome. Yeah, that's how we met, of course, through the ULA. And I agree with you. You can never really have too much education. So what case did you want to start with, Dave? You know, we were talking about some great cases, and I had one that came to mind after the fact, because I think it's such a great example of trying not to anchor too quickly. So we'll say that I practice in Minn Kota General. I was wrapping up a shift with a colleague, and this was her case, but she kind of pulled me in just because some strange things happened. So you have an elderly male in his 70s that presents to the emergency department short of breath, and this is peak pandemic. The nurses get him hooked up to the monitors. He's a little bit hypoxic. He'll go and get the COVID test ready to go. My colleague called me shortly thereafter and said, this gentleman, his blood pressure just got really, really high, and his O2 sats have plummeted, and I could really use your help. I walked in the room, and you see a gentleman who is in his 70s. He is diaphoretic and working very hard to breathe. My colleague, who already knows that I love my ultrasound, had it at bedside ready to go. And as she was busy getting some oxygen to support them and figure out what to do next, I put the ultrasound on the chest and I wound up seeing some beelines all over the place, just a big mess of beelines. So in my head, there's always that question of what do we do first? And I think this is a great teaching point in general. And I taught this to my my medical students now and to my junior residents is the first thing I always want someone to do when you walk into a room is ask yourself the question, is this patient sick or not sick? I think that's the best piece of advice I can give someone in that situation. So if I walk in and see a guy who's pale, diaphoretic, and working really hard to breathe, this gentleman is sick and don't prove it otherwise. So you got a gentleman who's hypertensive, hypoxic, and just doesn't look well. So the knee-jerk reaction when you see something like beelines is you think about, is this a case of flash pulmonary edema. Certainly COVID and ARDS is still in your differential, but at the same time, you've got to be able to think on your feet and ultimately you got to focus on your ABCs first. And so he's mentating, he's still protecting his airway fine. He's got the BiPAP machine on now to help get him breathing a little bit more comfortably. They got the nitro drip going just because there was concerns of that based on my ultrasound. And we got him down to the CT scanner in record time. Any thoughts that you have just hearing that intro, Jonathan? Yeah, no, that's great. I was wondering what the vital signs were, because you mentioned kind of trends, but do you have any numbers for us? Yeah. When I first got in the room, his heart rate was in the 120s. O2 saturation, now they had him hooked up. He was in the low 90s, and his respirators were in the 30s. Blood pressure, I think when I first got there, was about 180 systolic, over about 110 or so. He is afebrile. He was about, I think, 37 Celsius. Awesome. 
Thanks for using the international units. We appreciate, we appreciate that. <laughs> well, we, we learned both in the U.S., just so it's less confusing. I love it. I love it. Okay, good. So we've basically got someone with, we presume, acute pulmonary edema. It's all throughout the lungs. We've got the vital signs that you just rattled off there. He's not febrile, so we're maybe leaning a little bit away from infection, despite the fact this was in COVID times. When I see a heart rate over 100 and an SpO2 less than 95, it always makes me think PE. Mm -hmm. Now, you started by saying this is a great case to force us away from anchoring. And so I want to make it very clear that we don't want to just jump on that right away. But that definitely wins PE uh, spot on my Mm -hmm. differential diagnosis and something I need to think about before I get too far gone. I'm glad that, first of all, you have a CT scanner, which is awesome. Presumably, we're going to get some information back on that pretty quick. So I don't think we need to necessarily bother with a D-dimer at this point. You mentioned that flash pulmonary edema was sort of your working diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I think infectious causes are still high on the differential here. What else? What else were you thinking about? No, that's exactly where I was in this process. I mean, the other thing at this point is we were still in, I would say, mid-phase pandemic at that point. So the question is, is this an ARDS picture? With COVID pneumonia, do we need to get crazy about precautions and all that good stuff? But yeah, that was for sure my working differential as we were heading to the CT scanner. I wonder, did you do some serology at this point? Yeah, so we had a protocol in place for COVID, and it's kind of your standard infectious workup, which I'll list here in a second, plus your COVID concerning thing. So he got the CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel. A CMP is kind of an expansion of your basic metabolic panel. So your BMP is going to be your electrolytes, your creatinine, and then the CMP will include things like your liver function and your bilirubin. So it's just a more complete profile of what's going on for the patient in this case. We had a lactic acid sent off. I believe there was a VBG, which did demonstrate that he was acidotic. I don't have what his CO2 or what his O2 were, but he was acidotic for sure. Like a respiratory acidosis. Lactic acid. Oh, a metabolic acidosis. Okay. Lactic acid was sent off, cultures, and then he did get a chest x-ray before he went over as well, just because radiology was already in-house and had the portal x-ray ready to go. Okay, good. Do you want to sort of launch into some results, or is yeah. there something else you want to discuss at this point? We could definitely jump into that. For starters, once we got the BiPAP on him, he was breathing more comfortably. My colleague had told me when I got there, his blood pressure was initially 210 and she had started a nitro drip already. So nitroglycerin drip was started. And so by the time I got in the room, he was 180 and was starting to feel better already with that on board. Chest x-ray was up and it had from our ER side of things, he had some fluffy looking lungs, which would be confirmed from our ultrasound that showed those B lines. So definitely some pulmonary edema present. The other thing I will say on his x-ray was that the mediastinum looked widened and that caught me off guard, but I wasn't quite sure what to make of that yet. So we kind of put that in the back of our heads and went over to the CT scanner. And what happens next is actually the reason why I think having another colleague in-house is always a nice thing to do. So we got him over to the CT scanner and one of the most important things that I do, and not all my colleagues do this, is I always go to the CT scanner or the x-ray room with the patient in these scenarios, just so I can kind of see the imaging in real time. So that if I need to make a split second decision or something that might warrant getting some more pictures before them going back to the ER, we can get those things done in a timely fashion. So as the CT scan was going, we sat and waited for the contrast. We did do a CT PE study, just like you kind of asked, like, is this potentially a pulmonary embolism? And we sat and we sat and we sat and we sat (laughs) and the contrast finally started to move. 
So my first thought, seeing that, like waiting for the contrast to get into the vessel that your target is for you to get the scan going, was, man, he must have some heart failure going on because this is taking a really long time. And then as I proceeded to watch, my response went from, oh, oh no, oh no, Dr. So-and-so, I need you to go call the vascular surgeon now. And what we wound up seeing was a dissection of his ascending thoracic aorta down into his descending thoracic aorta with a AAA. Wow. I just want to clarify, at no point did this fellow complain of chest pain. It was just sort of shortness of breath, increased work of breathing, and Mm -hmm. then the uh, change in vital signs. Is that correct? Yeah. He was just shorter breath, hypoxic, hypertensive, and tachycardic when he came in. Yeah. But his only complaint was that he, he was just feeling more and more winded. Wow. That is not something you would expect to see very often. And it makes me very glad that we didn't thrombolize this patient. (laughs) Yes, that was my thought as well. And I went from looking at this and my colleague who's FD, I said, go call the surgeon right now. You just need to let them know what I see. They can look at the scan themselves. We do not need to wait for radiology to read this. We need this patient on a helicopter 20 minutes ago. Yes. So you hear this story, Jonathan, and you've got nitro on board already. So his blood pressure is improving. It's probably about 160s to 150s systolic now. Heart rate's still in the hundreds. What would you do? Like, what's kind of your thought process when you hear something like that? Well, I think it's a tricky situation and you need to tread lightly. Mm -hmm. So the storm of thoughts that are coming off of my head right now in no particular order is what is the hemoglobin? Is this guy bleeding? Are we needing to transfuse him right now to try and keep him alive? How much do we need to control his hemodynamics to try and take the strain off of this dissection and AAA? Can we get away with reducing his heart rate and reducing his systolic pressure without causing some sort of infarct of an important organ like, you know, the brain? So those are my initial thoughts. And for me, I think I'd want to be making those in concert with the vascular surgeon's blessing Mm -hmm. because, of course... Eventually, that helicopter is going to arrive with this patient, hopefully not in arrest. And I need to make sure that the vascular surgeon is A-OK with the things that I'm doing in my facility. Yep. And I think it's another important point when we think about rural acute care anywhere is knowing what you have in your shop. You know, what you have available for us. We had nitroglycerin. We had esmolol. I think nitroprusside was available as well, but we already had the nitro drip on board. So I did make the decision while she was consulting the surgeon to get an esmolol drip set up and see if he titrate down to see if he would tolerate. Because the teaching from my residency was you want to try to shoot for that 90 systolic and a almost bradycardia, like you said, as long as circulation is intact. So as long as he's not getting altered, as long as he's not getting chest pain, important factors like that. So I did call our pharmacist and say, I need an esmolol drip. We have the nitroglycerin drip going. Let's just kind of get this guy as stable as possible. Good point on the blood products. I did get him type and screened right away. Fortunately, his hemoglobin was within our normal limits at our facility. I think he was like 13 or so for his hemoglobin. His hematocrit was right within the normal range. The other thing that was interesting on his scan, and I wish I had his report in front of me, but I don't, is that when you looked at his AAA portion of his aortic injury, I guess I'll call it, he had what looked like old clot, which what we mean by that is, you know, it had that more dark appearance to it compared to a much brighter white kind of on the outer edge. So it looked like he had kind of like an acute on chronic bleed or an acute on chronic leak going on. 
But once we got him back to the trauma bay, I was immediately ultrasounding his abdomen, looking for any free fluid in the pelvis. There was none reported on his CT scan, and I didn't see any on his ultrasound. By that point, my colleague had returned to the room, confirmed that cardiothoracic was in agreement with our plan and that they would take over once we got him over to one of our tertiary facilities. Wow. Wow. That sounds like a pretty optimized and quick turnaround for being in a remote facility and good on you guys. That's really well done. This is another interesting situation too, because when you hear something like that and you see something like that, as uh, an emergency physician and someone who works in smaller facilities like yourself, these people have very bad outcomes. Like their percentage of doing well is quite low already when you find a AAA, depending on what they look like clinically. And so we were trying to mentally prepare the patient and his wife that this is a very serious diagnosis. If you have belly pain or anything, you need to let us know right away. So we can talk about next steps. So we were trying to mentally prepare this family that this could become very traumatic for everybody involved very quickly if that AAA were to rupture. But they were very insistent. They wanted everything done. And that can prove a very challenging aspect, I think, of rural acute care is trying to have that honest conversation that we absolutely want to do everything we can for you. But at the same time, you know, we have to be, be reasonable as well. For sure. I guess the way I look at it is in some ways it's a little bit simple because a patient says to you, I want everything done. And Mm -hmm. what that means is we'll do everything we can that we have the technology to do. So we can't crash you onto ECMO because we don't have that, but we can do CPR, you know? So I agree. I think it's important to have that conversation, but in the back of my mind, there's always a backstop just purely because of the limitations of the resources that we have access to. Absolutely. And even just adding that we have no surgeons in our facility and I'm not about to perform an emergency laparotomy in the ER trauma bay. It's a little bit beyond my scope, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes, mine too. (laughs) Um, I, I should point out too, we mentioned that you're looking for free fluid as maybe a sign of a ruptured AAA in the abdomen, a brilliant step. But the sensitivity of detecting a ruptured AAA with ultrasound is actually a little bit lower because I want to say one third bleeds retroperitoneally. And if you do get a retroperitoneal bleed, it's almost invisible on ultrasound. Mm -hmm. The chance of detecting that are slim to none. So by all means, do the ultrasound. If you see free fluid, then there's a bleed. Presumably you need to treat that. But just because you don't see free fluid in the abdomen doesn't mean that this person doesn't have a catastrophic bleed that is going to benefit from blood products. Yeah. And springboarding off that, there's this is probably another important point is trying to retain your clinical skills in this case, because if there's concerns for such things, we can use our physical exam to our advantage too. Because there's what the Gray-Turner syndrome, looking at the flanks to see if there's any retroperitoneal bleed. I mean, I don't know what the sensitivity is on that. But it's still a thing that you can do to look for it, as well as if you're looking for any periumbilical bruising, that might be another way to kind of help further your suspicion as well. For sure. I have seen blood in the pelvis before from a triple A endo leak. In that case, it was in the abdominal cavity and I did find it. And that's what kind of expedited their care and residency. But yeah, yeah, retroperitoneal is sneaky. Yeah, no, for sure it can be. Again, you're very fortunate being in a regional center that you've got CT. So that's going to help a lot. But in a lot of our Fort St. Nowhere, really remote places where we don't have access to that, it just adds another layer of uncertainty and potential complication. Dave, you also mentioned you've got access to some really good drugs. You've got the Esmolol drip and you've got nitroprusside. I can't say I've seen any of those available in rural Canada. 
I'm pretty sure that most of our regional centers have those no problem. But when it comes to the typical Canadian rural facility, we might be trying to deal with this with IV metoprolol is maybe one of our best beta blocker choices. Mm -hmm. And in terms of calcium channel blocker or other agents, we generally have access to nitroglycerin, but otherwise we might be looking at labetalol or amlodipine or something like that. So that gets very tricky as well. And there is huge utility whenever you're trying to control someone's blood pressure, whether you're trying to resuscitate them and raise that blood pressure, or whether you're trying to control their hypertension and reduce it as we are in this case, there's huge utility in being able to insert a arterial line. Mm -hmm. But again, in most of the facilities that I work in, we don't have access to the monitoring equipment. So even if we put that line in, we've got nothing to hook it up to. And that's a real shame because trying to titrate someone's blood pressure based on an intermittent non-invasive cuff that's cycling is a real exercise and frustration because those cuffs are especially unreliable once you get outside of the normal limits of adult blood pressure. So once you're over say 160 or you're below 90, those cuffs become unreliable and they're inflating over and over again. And it might be 25 minutes before you get a pressure, which you may not even be able to rely on. So for me, if I don't have access to invasive monitoring, one of my next steps is to get a manual cuff to the bedside so that I can at least verify if that automatic machine is struggling. Yeah, I, I love the way you broke this down too, because I think this kind of keys into another great point that I taught my junior residents as well as my med students when they pass through. You know, we talked about identifying sick or not sick. But the other thing I tell my third year med students when they rotate with me is, I want you to keep it simple. I want you to come in and tell me, is this patient sick or not sick? And that I want you to keep it in simple terms, what's the problem? And I think what you just did is a great way of explaining that. So we've got a guy that we want to control his blood pressure. So then the next question is, what in my arsenal do I have that I can potentially address this that might not necessarily meet the textbook definition of treatment, but in the smaller Canadian facilities or even the smaller facilities in the States, we don't necessarily have that luxury. And so being able to really problem solve and say, okay, this guy needs his blood pressure control. And if I can control his rate too, that'd be even better. What meds do I have that could address this until we can get what we need? Probably from the helicopter or the plane, if you're lucky. Yeah, I think it's important to understand what your limitations are in the location you work in and the corresponding toolkit, what is available to you. Because it's great if you come in with this cutting edge knowledge of these really fantastic drugs, but totally useless if all you've got in your hospital pharmacy are three simple oral drugs. Mm -hmm. So it's important to know that stuff in advance in order to best be prepared for it. We should probably also just talk a little bit about the hemodynamics at play here. So basically this guy had a dissection pretty much in the, did you say in the ascending aorta or? Ascending all the way down. It was sizable, pretty much the entire length. Yeah. Again, you've got the benefit of seeing the CT, so you know where the dilation starts. But if you don't have that and you're worried about a diagnosis like this, you have to assume that you could have involvement of all of these cardinal arteries that are coming off as high as the aortic arch or even coming off the coronary arteries as well. Now, again, this fellow didn't have any chest pain, but an EKG and a troponin are, I think, important just to establish that he's not having some sort of myocardial ischemia as a result of this. Mm -hmm. But he could have involvement of his brachiocephalic arteries or up into the carotids or whatever. So if we're not careful in reducing that blood pressure, we could end up inadvertently infarcting his brain. And so you had mentioned watch him carefully for signs of mentation. And I totally agree with that. And 
it's so much safer when you have an ultra short acting agent that you can just shut off. But if you don't, if you have something a little bit longer acting, like say IV metoprolol, then you need to be cautious and really think about dosing these things slowly with small doses and watching very carefully rather than give too much and then be committed for the next 15 or 30 minutes while you're waiting for this to wear off and the poor guy's having now hemiparesis. Mm -hmm. What do you think was the cause of all the pulmonary edema, Dave? You know, it's such a good question. I really agonized over that for a while because I was trying to make sense of like what could have possibly pushed this guy. And the only thing I can think of is that... I mean, you're making me tap into my physics bank here. It's been a while since I thought about the physics sides of cardiopulmonary stuff. No worries. I don't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's one of those things where it's like you, you have to wonder, though, because I, I do remember that I didn't actually echo his heart. So I don't know whether or not he had any tamponade or anything around his heart that could have caused backflow that way. Because that's one thing you think of, right? If you dissect enough that it goes into the pericardium and then you've got blood around the heart, that's one possibility. In his case, that would not have been the case. I would imagine that there's going to be other things at play, and I might let you tag on that one. But that's the classic, I think, answer that you give is if they're tear back far enough, you can start bleeding into the pericardium. Yes, absolutely. I was going to ask you if you had a chance. And often in these resuscitation situations, you just don't have the time to do a comprehensive ultrasound of all these different systems because you're too busy trying to save the patient's life. So no worries there. My best guess is that this was an issue with LV pressure overload. And so you have the LV trying to squeeze blood into this distorted aorta that's super high resistance because of all the dissection and downstream Mm -hmm. aneurysm and whatnot. And you yourself said you were waiting for the contrast for quite a long time for that contrast to show up in the CT scan. And so I think that's just a sign that the heart's working really, really hard, generating these super high pressures to squirt very, very small amounts of blood through the aortic valve just due to that resistance. And so if the LV is working that hard, I don't think it takes very long for the left atrium to overload and you're getting fluid now backing up into the lungs. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And in retrospect, and now that I'm much more comfortable and confident in my echosonography, I feel like that would have been a great one to really kind of delve in a little bit deeper than now that he was clinically stable. Surprisingly, he had a phenomenal outcome. He wound up going to our tertiary facility and they wound up eventually transferring this person to an even higher academic facility to address it because of the severity and the extensiveness of his dissection in AAA. And this individual did follow up with one of our colleagues who was their PCP. And the surgeon that saw them at this academic institution told them, that he was lucky to be alive and that the people in the ER did a phenomenal job doing that. And that's got to be one of the highest praises I think we can get as, you know, rural facilities is getting that recognition from those specialists saying, hey, they did absolutely everything they could and they did the right thing and they got you here in one piece. For sure. For sure. That's got to feel good. And as you said, the prognosis for this type of situation is particularly low. I think you were doing the right thing with coaching this guy, but sometimes people just have that kind of happy denial attitude and it works for them and that's great. And so all's well that ends well, but clearly it was a job well done. So good on you. I hope you have an extra beer for that one. Yeah, that was only like two months out of residency. So I was <laughs> wow. I was still adjusting to, I kept looking for the more attendee or attending on that one, but yes, you know, things went, things went well. Yeah. No, it's a phenomenal case. I really appreciate taking the time to share it with us. 
Do you have any other thoughts before we bring this in for a landing? You know, I think just kind of going back to the high points of the case itself, or just, I guess, rural acute care in general is in these situations, always ask yourself when you walk into a room, is this patient sick or not sick? I think that's the most important first step because that'll help you start thinking disposition while you're caring for this patient. And then going from there, if something seems confusing or really terrifying, make it simple. Even if it's as simple as saying, I need to fix his blood pressure in this case. And keeping it simple, you're going to do a much better job of taking care of the patient. Well, there you have it. Our first international presenter on the R&R Rounds podcast. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining us and sharing that wonderful case. Hopefully we can cajole you into joining us again at some point. And for all seven of my regular listeners, if you have an interesting case you'd like to share, we'd love to open up the microphone and invite you onto the podcast as well to get some variety of interesting cases as well as interesting locations. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.